This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Corey Brown. She's a distinguished professor of veterinary pathology at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Georgia. We'll be discussing two articles about large-scale die-offs among Sega antelopes. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for having me on. Well, we're very happy to have you here. So, many of us probably have never heard of the Sega antelope. What makes it different from any other type of antelope? Well, first of all, it's ancient. The Sega antelope has been around since the Pleistocene. It was walking around at the same time as saber-toothed tigers. So, it's persisted for many, many years. Uh, it looks strange. It has a very large, droopy nose, uh, more like a proboscis. It's very uh, long, and it hangs over, and they think that's because it helps them to breathe the frigid air in the winter and keep out the dust in the summer. It's about the size of a Great Dane. It has kind of a hippity-hop gait, and uh, it currently exists in only a very few areas. And where are those areas? Where is it found? What's its habitat like? Well, there are few animals in Russia. Then the largest population is in Kazakhstan, and a smaller subpopulation is in Mongolia. And this differs from its earlier range, which was all across the steppe um, throughout much of uh, Central Asia. It likes uh, cold, dry grasslands, you know, the steppes, which is Russian for, I think, dry, cold grasslands. <laughs> yes, I think so. Okay, so um, uh, the Sega antelope is critically endangered. Can you tell us about that? Well, Sarah, it's mostly due to human encroachment. You know, it was almost exterminated in the 1920s, mostly because the horns of the male are so valuable. Uh, they were largely harvested for uh, traditional Chinese medicine, and they're used to make elixirs similar to the elixirs made from rhino horn. So they were almost wiped out by the 1920s, but then they made a comeback by the 1950s, 1950s, and there were about 2 million present in this large area. Then after the fall of the Soviet Union, when there were, you know, a lot of hungry, poor people walking around, uh, they started uh, catching these animals and harvesting the horns and selling them to China again, and also eating them. They say that the saiga antelope tastes like lamb, and now they are critically endangered. One of these studies looked at a mass die-off in Kazakhstan in 2015. Apparently, that wasn't the first time this happened. Tell us more about that. Well, there have been periodic die-offs. Probably the biggest one prior to the one that was described in one of these papers that happened in 2015 was in uh, 2010 when about 12,000 animals died. And then in 2011, they had a similar die-off, but fewer animals were affected. And that was all in a very specific pasture area, and they attributed it to bloat as a result of consumption of pasture material that's very high in protein. So I'll tell you about frothy bloat. So animals that, uh, ruminants that eat a lot of uh, protein along with their forage, and alfalfa is very high in protein, they get a lot of little bubbles in their rumen, a lot of froth. And that froth builds up and it inhibits the receptor in the rumen that tells them to belch. So basically, the rumen just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and they die of cardiorespiratory compromise. 
And if, if you think about that froth that happens in frothy bloat, think about the top of your cappuccino. So that's also the same kind of froth made from the protein in milk. Okay, so that was the previous die-off. What caused this 2015 one? In 2015, that die-off, which killed about 120,000 animals, that has been attributed to a disease we know as hemorrhagic septicemia, which is caused by a specific strain of a bacteria, Pasteurella multocida. And what is Pasteurella multocida? Well, there are a whole lot of strains of Pasteurella multocida in different animals. Uh, One strain will cause pneumonia in sheep and goats. Another one causes snuffles in rabbits, which, as you would expect, is a respiratory problem. It's also carried in dog and cat oral cavities in their mouth, so people who get a cat bite can get infected with this cat, Pasteurella multocida, that travels up the lymphatics and has to be treated. But this particular Pasteurella multocida that causes hemorrhagic septicemia is different. And hemorrhagic septicemia occurs in uh, some areas of the world, mostly in Asia, and it will uh, replicate to very high numbers and cause basically an endotoxic shock. It has a lot of lipopolysaccharide around the outside, and animals can die very quickly. And I think from these articles, I get the impression that scientists think that an additional pathogen might be at play. Well, when I first heard that 120,000 antelope had died of hemorrhagic septicemia, I just kind of rolled my eyes and said, no, that's not possible. Hemorrhagic septicemia doesn't move that, it moves quickly, but that was like super quick. So, uh, but after I looked at all the data, I said, yes, in fact, this is hemorrhagic septicemia and all other potential causes were pretty much ruled out. So there was no other pathogen making this outbreak even worse? Well, it hasn't been found if there is one. And there was a pretty extensive search. Interesting. Uh, How did climate and weather play into this situation? Well, we know that the very worst epidemics of hemorrhagic septicemia happen in the rainy season. And this particular season, this uh, this time in the spring of 2015, it was exceptionally wet and warm. So that would have allowed the Pasteurella multocida organism that causes this to uh, survive longer in the environment and maybe even proliferate. So we think that that may have been a factor. One of the articles theorizes that this bacteria is probably widely present in the antelope population anyway, but doesn't usually cause any illness. How does that work? About 20% of the surviving animals will actually be carriers. And we think that um, for the pastorella that occurs in other species, they often carry this in their uh, oropharyngeal region, and there's some stress that allows it to get to deeper reaches and cause disease. So I suspect that Pasteurella multocida probably is in this population all the time, but I think it got to much higher numbers. We know that in the early stages of hemorrhagic septicemia, there's lots of exudate, there's a lot of saliva, runny nose that uh, is full of the bacteria and it contaminates the environment. So I think probably one or two animals came down with this disease where they may have already had it or it's, it's They gave it to another animal, and then there was enough environmental contamination that all the animals got it, and they were probably pretty naive to the organism. 
120,000 died. Do we know how many are left? Oh, I think there are about between 100 and 200,000 left in the world. So almost 50%. Yeah. Wow. Or maybe even more than 50%. That's tragic. Um, Another die-off happened in the neighboring Mongolia in 2016-17. What happened there? So that was in the fall of 2016, going over several months into 2017. The population of saiga antelope in Mongolia is, is pretty small. It's a subspecies, and there are many fewer animals. Uh, and during over that period, about 80% of the animals died. So there is real concern about this subpopulation actually becoming extinct. <sighs> was this die-off caused by the same bacteria as before, or was this something different entirely? Well, actually, uh, the animals that they investigated, they found a virus in there. Um, they did not find any evidence of the hemorrhagic septicemia. So it appears to be two completely different problems wiping out a large swath of the population, which I found very odd, and I had to go to the maps and convince myself that there was a high mountain range in between these two areas, and there could not have been any crossover of uh, animals between those two areas. So the die-off here was caused by a virus that is known as Peste Petit Ruminant, which is a French name, and the non-Francophone part of the world calls it PPR. PPR is a close relative of rinderpest, which is the only animal disease to be eradicated from the world. And it is currently causing problems in many parts of the world. It has moved extensively from its base in West Africa over to East Africa, over into the Middle East, through South Asia, into uh, China, and now it's down into many of the Central Asian countries as a relatively new phenomenon. And quickly moving, it seems. Um, so some experts were hoping, are hoping, that we might be able to eradicate this virus. Uh, why is it such a high priority compared to other livestock diseases? Well, you know, sheep and goats are the, they're the, the livelihood of the small farmers throughout the world. Small farmers everywhere rely on their sheep and goats for sustenance for the uh, mobile bank account, for food. And uh, this virus is very damaging to both sheep and goats, both small ruminants, petite ruminants. And um, there is a vaccine that is very effective at preventing it. The vaccine is similar to the Rinderpest vaccine. One vaccination will protect an animal for life. It's only transmitted by contact. It doesn't remain in the body system once an animal is infected. Uh, so it, is, it would be possible to eradicate this, and that would be really wonderful. There, in fact, is a move by the UN FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, jointly with the OIE, the World Organization for Animal Health. It's the Global Pest to Petite Ruminants Eradication Campaign. Now, they had a similar campaign for Rinderpest, and they were successful, largely due to getting plenty of uh, international funding. Unfortunately, sheep and goats don't capture the political will in the same way that cattle do. And so the program is uh, seriously underfunded. 
This virus usually only occurs, as we're talking about, in domesticated animals like sheep and goats. So how did it spread to the antelope? Well, it will infect a lot of hoof stalks, small hoof stalks. So it doesn't surprise me that it would show up in antelope. We have seen it in wild animals before, especially in, in zoos in different places. Uh, we also believe that this virus is the same as rinderpest in that its a main host is the domestic sheep and goats. And when it occurs in wildlife, it's mostly a spillover event from the livestock species. So that eradicating it from the livestock is likely to actually eradicate the disease. Seems to be a time frame issue here, though. If 80% was destroyed by this last outbreak and eradication is looking a little iffy because of the reasons you just mentioned, what do you think the odds are? Well, they have just gone in in, in Mongolia and vaccinated uh, most of the remaining animals against this uh, disease. So there should be some protection now if they can maintain that. Um, these animals will be safe. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Uh, the study also looked at other local species who could catch the virus. What were the differences between Saiga and other species? Well, the Ibex did not suffer quite as much as the, as the Saiga did. Um, also, it was interesting in that the ibex, they're not migratory. They stay in one spot. And the dead ibex showed up in various localities, but there would not have been any uh, connection between any of those localities. And so that indicates that it is a recurring spillover event. I think that was the importance of that, that it did come from the livestock and, and so are these antelopes particularly vulnerable to this disease? Well, they, they're vulnerable in that this disease has never been present in this area. So they're completely immunologically naive to this virus, which has only been in Central Asia for the last three to four to five years. Um, also, in the outbreak in Mongolia, the animals, uh, they did note that they were uh, quite emaciated, perhaps due to lack of sufficient grasslands. And so that may have also increased the, uh, the case fatality rate. Did climate change have an impact on any of this? Oh, golly, who knows? You know, there's a lot of speculation about that. We do know that in this area, uh, global warming is supposed to increase the dryness and so, therefore, it will decrease the pasture. However, with the hemorrhagic septicemia episode, it happened in uh, an unusually warm and wet period due to a severe, what do they call it, a severe climatic event, um, you know, a local storm, severe weather event, right. So, rather than drying out, it was inundated. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well... As we mentioned before, Sega antelope are critically endangered. Um, now, how do we protect them from the many threats they face, both infection and non-infectious? One of the big problems for the Saiga antelope are the poachers, the people who come in and uh, take the, the males. I mean, they kill the males just so they can get the horns. And these horns are really not spectacular. They're only about 12 inches long. They look kind of waxy, and they have a number of rings in them, but 
uh, a set of horns can bring in $5,000 in the market for traditional Chinese medicine. So there's huge incentive there. So to have more rangers so that to protect them from poachers, and there are quite a few efforts there. Uh, they're probably not as well funded as they could be, mostly because a lot of those efforts are funded by the governments of these countries, which are maybe not as, as flush as we would like. For protecting them from disease, since we know that PPR is already established in this area, we probably need to make an effort to, to do some more vaccinations to protect them. Uh, we do know that there is considerable building happening in this area. There's some mining. They're making uh, roads to go into the mines, and so there's uh, quite a bit of habitat encroachment. And to ensure that we can save the animals and along their migratory routes, all of that needs to be carefully planned. So, as you said a minute ago, that decreased the population uh, by about 80%. Is there hope that we can recover? Okay, here's the good news. One male breeds 5 to 50 females. He has quite a harem. And each female usually has twins, occasionally singlets and sometimes triplets. But there's usually two produced for each female every year. So... I think it's possible, and they have been at the brink of extinction before, and they've come back. So I like to be optimistic and think as long as forces are brought to bear to preserve this population and protect them, that they will continue to inhabit the Earth. I hope so, too. What do you personally think the future of veterinary medicine holds? Here in the U.S., our focus in veterinary medicine is really oriented towards companion animals. And we do very high-tech remedies and individual animal care for uh, fairly complicated diseases. It doesn't work that way in the rest of the world. Uh, unfortunately, that makes our graduating veterinarians ill-equipped to deal with livestock diseases in resource-poor countries and to understand the whole issues surrounding uh, global trade in animals and animal products and the importance of staying free of diseases. So I continue to uh, rally for that and to try to uh, promote educational opportunities for veterinarians in the U.S. to understand public service in a global sense for our profession. We can make great contributions but we have to make sure our students are aware of these avenues for making contributions and receive sufficient training so that they're quite useful. And can you give us an example of how one could make such a contribution? Yes. We have some programs where we uh, work to take students overseas and have them work in a, a smallholder setting where they are actually working with farmers a farmer who may have two goats and ten chickens, uh, no veterinary care, and to help explain to that farmer the importance of biosecurity, reporting the diseases of the public good that need to be controlled by the government, and how to uh, slaughter and prepare food safely. And I know you have some interesting thoughts on the term One Health. Why don't you tell us those thoughts. 
Okay, well, <laughs> One Health is supposed to be the joining of human health, animal health, and environmental health. But it is really pretty much totally driven by human health. And everybody signs on to it. It's a little bit like kumbaya. We all get around the fire and say, yes, we're all going to work together. But in fact, when the rubber hits the road, uh, the animal health issues in One Health are pretty much restricted to the zoonotic diseases. But in fact, there are so many diseases of agricultural animals that are not zoonotic that are seriously impacting food security. African swine fever, for example, has killed half the pigs in China, and it threatens food security for a lot of the other parts of the world. PPR is another one. It's bankrupting smallholders across Asia, and yet these are diseases that are never highlighted in One Health discussions. Instead, it's the high-profile diseases which maybe are not as important to agricultural factors, such as you know, anthrax or contagious area, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, those are the ones that are getting all of the funding. Well, that is interesting and very informative. And now, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you like about your job? What do you like to do? I am a professor at the University of Georgia, and I love watching light bulbs go off in the veterinary students as they learn about pathogenesis of disease and uh, mechanisms, how the body operates and uh, what makes it go wrong. I'm fortunate in that the university allows me to do quite a bit of extension work overseas. So I do building animal health infrastructure in multiple countries around the world, and nothing makes me happier than, than interacting with my colleagues from around the world and working with them to sustainably build capacity so that they can improve their own systems. Would it be possible, not in an ideal world, but in this world we live in, um, to switch the planet basically from animal-based to some kind of basically plant-based? Okay, thanks for that question, Sarah, and it's one I come up against so often, and You know, I think we in the developed world, we definitely consume way too much meat. uh, And we have the, uh, we have the option of being a vegetarian where we can get everything we need because we have wonderful choices of food so that we can fill all of our nutritional needs. So this is not true though of the two billion people who live on less than $2 a day. And most of these people are smallholders. They're surviving with their one cow and 10 chickens or five goats. And for those people, animal source foods is really essential. The diet in the developing world largely consists of starches, and you can get enough of your calories that way. But if you don't get some animal source foods every day, you are deficient in micronutrients. About 20% 20 of the women in the developing world are anemic because they don't have enough iron. And cognitive stunting has become a huge concern in the developing world. So we know that if children between the ages of one and five don't get a small amount of animal source foods each day, and by that I mean a glass of milk, an egg, or a small piece of meat, that their brain does not develop properly. And they grow up, they are permanently cognitively stunted. The World Bank estimates that in some countries, some very poor countries, 
that their uh, entire GDP decreases by 10% as a result of this cognitive stunting. So, yes, here we eat too much meat, but in many parts of the world, they actually need those micronutrients. Now, you may say, but micronutrients are present in plants. This is true, but they are not bioavailable. The phytates in plants inhibit their absorption. So you could have one egg or you could eat a bushel full of spinach each day. Uh, livestock will continue to be important in the developing world because uh, the children really need this form of nutrition. I think we tend to look at the world through our Western-centric lens, this lens that sees uh, our predominant problem with nutrition is overnutrition, and our grocery stores are just loaded with choices, but there are a lot of parts of the world you go to the market and you can get, maybe you can get bananas today because that's all they have, and tomorrow you might be able to get only potatoes. But where you don't have choice, we really need to supply uh, enough micronutrients to ensure a viable lifestyle. That's extremely interesting, and I sadly um, suspected that that was the case. And thank you for that forthright and honest answer. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Brown. Oh, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for this opportunity. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the January 2020 article, Outbreak of Pesta de Petite Rumina Among Critically Endangered Mongolian Saga and Other Wild Ungulates, Mongolia 2016-2017, and the June 2019 article, Mass Die-Off of Saga Antelopes, Kazakhstan 2015, online at cdc.gov I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.